You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. continue to go through our shorter catechism. If you need a catechism, there is one here. There's a whole box full. You're welcome to one. And today we're looking at the Trinity, covering questions five and six. In terms of preliminary remarks, this is perhaps, well, probably is the most important doctrine of Christianity, the Trinity. And you cannot be a Christian and reject the triunity of God, regardless of what somebody might think, this is foundational. As a matter of fact, we're baptized into the triune name, come under the authority of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so you have to be a Trinitarian to be a Christian. Yeah, yeah. And some claim, and I I really haven't teased this out myself, but some claim that all errors, every error, can be traced back to the Trinity in some form. So we understand that theological precision, and I know that's not a popular thing in our day, but theological precision is necessary in framing this doctrine. We have to be as careful as we can be. And we're grateful for the forefathers who've gone before us centuries of hammering out this truth, looking at the scriptures, debating it, and uh, laying down for us what we believe is the true doctrine of the Trinity. So there are two seemingly, and I say emphasize seemingly contradictory truths that have to be affirmed and safeguarded. And both of these are taught in scripture. On the one hand, we must affirm and defend the unity of God. He's one. There is no God but one. For us, there is one God, the Father. So that's the unity of God, the exclusivity of God. He is one God. On the other hand, we have to affirm and defend the plurality of God. Not the plurality of gods, but the plurality of the one true God. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, said Jesus, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Notice it doesn't say names. It's not plural. It's the name of the triune God, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So right there in the baptismal formula, we find this what I think is a very clear expression of the doctrine of the Trinity. And this is how we're brought into the church. We are, in effect, Trinitarians by baptism. And, of course, as you know, many critics of Christianity claim that this truth makes no sense. They reject it outright. The Jehovah's Witnesses or Unitarians, the Jehovah's Witnesses are Unitarians, they ridicule this doctrine, accusing us of worshiping three gods. They can't make sense of it. I can't make sense of it. (laughs) Nobody can. It's not against reason. It is totally beyond reason. It's not something that we can figure out. But it is something that God has revealed. Polytheists, those who believe in many gods, refuse to accept the one essence of God's divine being. 
Even though there are three persons, they refuse to accept the unity of God. So the critics say that this makes no sense. But again, we believe it because God has revealed it. Any questions on the preliminary matter? Okay. Okay, the unity of God. Question five asks, are there more gods than one? And the answer given is there is but one only, the living and true God. So few, if any, truths are stressed more than this in Scripture from beginning to end. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's stressed over and over again in Scripture that there is one God. It's monotheistic. Monotheism, one God, is taught everywhere in Scripture. And he has not left himself without witness. He gives us rain, seasons, food, and gladness, and so forth. And mankind knows that there is a God. Can't escape it. The light of nature in man is conscience, the very reasoning faculty that God gives him. He looks around himself and sees evidence everywhere of the existence of God, but he suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. So this is one of the reasons why the world will not acknowledge God, because they know the truth, but they will not admit it. And they're inexcusable, because we should know him. There is plenty of evidence everywhere, within and without. People have a sense of deity. They perceive his eternal power, according to Romans 1, his divine nature, his infinite being. Um, So they're inexcusable. Fallen man is inexcusable. There's no reason, there's no rational basis for him to reject the true and living God. Sin is irrational. Makes no sense. He is the one true and living God in contrast to the lifeless and worthless idols of the world. You know, it's Psalm 15 where it talks about they have eyes, they can't see, ears, can't hear, lips, all that kind of stuff. And it's making the point that these are lifeless and therefore worthless. God is true and alive. The instruction of idols is but wood. They are the work of the craftsmen and of the hands of the goldsmith, but the Lord is the true God. And he is the living God and the everlasting king. Again, Psalm 15, as I said, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, and it goes down the list. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. So the way God made man is that we become like what we worship. Whatever you worship. So as we go into the sanctuary and worship the true and living God, we're conformed more and more into his image. Again, as Voss has always said, it's the workplace of a renewing grace. But if you're an idolater, you become like the idol that you worship. Lifeless, worthless. You turn, says Paul to the Thessalonians, to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Could I make a request, a quick request? Yeah. Um, we need a helper for the K in first grade class that Brandon Kenny was going to help, but he's uh, ill today suddenly. So, so oh, we got multiple signing. Thank you. We have multiple Thank you. Oh, no problem. Thank you, Soup. He's the Sunday school soup. <laughs> <laughs> he does a great job. I would not want to have to have that responsibility. It's, it's huge. 
Any questions on the unity of God? Okay. We continue. The Bible is explicit in repeatedly affirming this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Every day of a Jewish man and woman's life, they would get up and affirm the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is the first cause of all things. He is the ultimate end of everything. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is a self-existent, infinite being, and by necessity is one. He doesn't get his existence from anybody or anything else. He is eternally self-existent. There can be but one God who is independent of all others, having his being in and of himself. He said, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. I have been who I've been. He is an independent being, having being in and of himself. I don't know what that means. It is beyond me, but it is true. There can be but one infinite being who gives being to all the rest of his finite creatures. The psalmist says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. You can spend eternity exploring the greatness of God, and you'll never exhaust it. You cannot have two infinite beings. That doesn't make any sense. He is an infinite being, and so there cannot be another one, because he is the infinite being. He's only one. There can be but one God who is sovereign and subject to no one else but himself. God is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And then also there can be but one God who is truly omnipotent, wielding infinite almighty power, all power. You can't have more than one who exercises all power. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. All others are subject to him. So this is the unity of God. Any questions on these truths? We are monotheistic. We are Trinitarians, but we are also monotheistic, one God. We do not worship three gods. We worship the one true and living God. And we are morally obliged, we're obligated to worship and serve this God. He made us as beings in his image to serve and worship him. You shall have no other gods before me. That very first commandment has pride of place, and it implies the unity of God. There is no other. And he has the greatest share, or he ought to have the greatest share, of our affections, our desires, our thoughts, our purposes. If anything else has a greater share of our affections, then we break that first command. So let's beware of setting up any idol in our hearts in opposition to the one true and living God. And you can set up an idol with anything. It can even be an otherwise good thing. How many times have we seen parents who have their children set up as idols in their hearts? You love your children. They're gifts from God. But if they take more affection from you than God, then they're idols. You've turned them into idols. 
No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. He sums it up. You cannot serve God and money, and money used there as representative of the things of this world, the temporal things. Let's face it. Calvin's right. We We have idol factories within our hearts. We are by nature idol idolaters. And so it is this ongoing battle trying to make sure that our affections are given to God. That's one of the reasons why he has us come together once in every seven days. We're so very ready to forget that he deserves our whole heart. This is one of the reasons why covetousness is described by the Apostle Paul as idolatry, put to death, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. When you covet something, when you have such a strong desire for it and you're discontent with your own condition, you've slipped into idolatry. We should have such a full contentment with our own estate. We should have such a charitable esteem for our neighbor's good and prosperity that we never desire other than what God has given to us according to his fatherly wisdom. Wherever covetousness exists, there the world and its prizes are loved more than God. And every one of us is a coveter. We all struggle with it. We have to repent of it daily, take up our cross. If we expect that from the creature that that can only be found in God, then we dethrone him in our hearts. And oftentimes this happens in marriage. You know, we go into marriage thinking, oh, my spouse is going to meet all my needs, going to satisfy all my desires. And when we're disappointed, uh, bad things can happen. We can't expect that from the creature, from a spouse, a child, an employer, whoever it might be. You cannot expect that from the creature that only God can give. And when we learn this lesson, and of course it takes a lifetime to learn it, when we learn this lesson, we are the happiest people on earth. Your expectations are realistic, right? You don't get disappointed because you know what you deserve. You're not in hell. No, there's no such thing as hell on earth. Believe me. So we understand God is supposed to have the greatest share of our affections. And if we make people more important than the faith or God's sovereignty, then it is idolatry. Any, any comments or questions on the unity of God? Okay. Rihanna? Um, But, you know, to have a care or a disappointment or those human, you know, feelings without, you know, there's like this balance that you're always trying to find out of like the the difference between sinning and it becoming an idol where it's causing you to sin. But then the real emotions, I think, are, I I always feel like it's okay to feel disappointed when a spouse doesn't 
fulfill something, you know, even like a desire, a relationship exchange. Um, so just trying. Yeah, I think, well, you raise a good point. Um, and I think there's always, we're always striving for perfection, right? That's what we're called to do. Be perfect as your Father in Heaven's and perfect. We help our spouses to become more perfect and so forth. I do think, however, disappointment arises because of unmet expectations. You get Paul. He wanted to go into Asia and the Holy Spirit said no. Well, I mean, I don't see Paul sulking and saying, oh man, that's a bad idea. No, he's okay. I'll go to, you know, Corinth. So I think, again, if we frame our expectations biblically, we'll hardly ever be disappointed. What's the right word then? Was there an appropriate word that would describe, like a child that doesn't do something right, a spouse that doesn't do just what are, you know what I mean? Because if you say you can't feel disappointment, it almost makes you feel like you're supposed to be robotic, which I know you don't think. Right. You're, you're disappointed right at this moment. That <laughs> <laughs> was my answer. Yeah. Get this guy out of here. Um, I think this gets back to our understanding of providence. And I, I'm the first one, and ask my wife, I'm the worst driver because I lose my cool behind the wheel. I am so impatient. And I'm, I'm, I'm um, convicted continually. Okay, well, this is the providence of God. Do I trust in his providence? Why am I disappointed? What do I deserve? I deserve to be crashed. I deserve to be wholly deprived of all the good things in this life. So again, if I frame my expect, I deserve to have the worst spouse in the world, right? I've got a wonderful spouse. Look what God gave me. Wow. Now, am I perfect? Is she perfect? No. So we're working together. But I don't think I, don't think I would use the word disappointment. I'm not sure I have a word for you. But I do think that we should trust, because it's a sin against the third commandment to complain and murmur against God's providence, right? That's his name. Why would I complain or be disappointed, Jim? Couldn't you also characterize it as our pride that we assume that it's supposed to go the way we want it to go? Very good. Instead of trusting God's hand, that's just it. And I, it's kind of like being in a traffic jam. How dare that person screw up my day? Right. It's all about me instead of... It's not my time. It's God's time, right? Right. Yeah. But we're also not called to complacency. Right. Right. And I think finding that balance is sometimes the rough. Yeah, we recognize the fallen nature. We recognize the sinfulness of our existence in this life, right? So maybe that gets back to what you were saying, Rihanna, that we're always striving after Christ, pressing on to what lies ahead. I don't know if I would, I don't think it's wrong to use the word disappointment, but I think a lot of times what that connotes is something different than what I'm trying to say. You know, uh, Melissa. I was just thinking, at least for me personally, I think where the idolatry would come in is where I'm looking, for instance, at my children. If they're sinning, if I'm more upset about how they've offended me than how they've offended God, that's probably where the idolatry comes into my heart. Yeah, that's a good point. Eli, remember what God said to Eli? You've elevated your children, your sons above me. He refused to discipline them. They became worthless fellows, and um, Eli paid a heavy price. He was an idolater in that regard. Yeah. Don? Don? Yeah. The the passage where uh, uh, James and John's mother uh, says, I want 
It was like you have him sit on the right hand and the left hand. Right. Christ, Christ says it's not mine to, mine to do. Where does that unity come in on that? I think there Jesus was referring, <clears throat> oftentimes he'll refer to his humanity, his function as the mediator, right? Like we're going to come across a text here later that says, the Father is greater than I. What? I thought they were equal in power and glory. Well, he's referring, I think, to his humanity. Yeah, yeah. So let's look at the plurality. Oh, was there another hand? I'm sorry, John. I was just thinking about more with those I was also thinking about mourning. Uh, who is not led of a sin that I do not inwardly grieve? There are, there are, but I, I would agree with what you were saying. That there is, when someone sins even against us, am I, if, or if I have a relative that is not God, I can, the, the mourning, the, the sorrow should lead me to prayer, should lead me to further trust in God. We do not mourn as those who have no hope. So I, I think that. Yeah, I think you're right. Grieving is a little bit different than disappointment. I think you're right. You make a good point here because grieving, I think that's a good word. And maybe that's what I was searching for here. That we can grieve grieving. Sin. So if my child sins, sins by directly disobeying me, I'm grieving that they're sinning against God. I'm wanting them. I'm desiring them to obey. And that might encourage me to think about how I can more effectively discipline. Yeah, Jesus was grieved at their hardness of heart, right? He wasn't disappointed. He knew what was in man. He understood the providence of God. He is God. But, if I'm upset but he was that, grieved. If I'm upset that it wrecked my day or that they're not looking as, they're not making me look as good to my neighbors, right. then that's, the, I think, where it can be where the selfishness and the complaint can come in. Yeah, no, that's, that's good. I like that. Okay, number six, how many persons are there in the Godhead? I remember uh, Linda was catechizing our kids when they were little. I think I've told this before, but on the back porch. And the little boy next door came over, not churched. And this was the question they were working on. And so how many persons are in the Godhead? There are three persons and so forth. And then when they were done, the little boy was going to go home. And he said, oh, Mrs. Wright, I really like that, that question about the people in God's head. <laughs> I'll never forget that. He had no idea what you were talking about. How many persons are there in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Some people don't like the word substance. I get that. Very few words are adequate to express the truth of the Trinity. So they're trying to find something that communicates the same essence between the persons. They are, these three are distinct persons with personal properties that we'll look at in a minute. Things that distinguish them from each other, even though they're the same. Again, mystery. The scriptures manifest that the Son is God equal to the Father. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So the Son has the attributes of God. He knows what is in man. He does the work of God. He created the universe. And he receives the worship of God, Thomas, my Lord and my God. 
The Holy Spirit is God, equal to the Father. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You've not lied to man, but to God. He is God, equal with the other two persons. He has divine attributes. He does divine works. He receives and is worthy of divine worship. You ask, well, where is he worshiped? Well, we find it, for example, in the benedictory responses, the benedictions that are given in Scripture. We'll look at one momentarily. He's in the baptismal formula, baptized in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Where is baptism to be done? In public worship. He's part of public worship. Any questions on these statements? Okay. The first person in the Trinity is God the Father. He is first with respect to order, not with respect to dignity. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I don't mean that the Father is in some way superior to the other two. But in Scripture, for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit inspired the authors always to put the Father first. So he's first in respect to order. It's always the Father Son, Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean he's superior. He's not more wise, more holy, or more powerful than the other persons. There is priority, but again, as I said, not superiority. The persons are equal. The second person in the Trinity is God, the Son, who became incarnate in the fullness of time. Proverbs 8 is typically, typically understood as wisdom personified as the pre-incarnate Christ speaking. And so part of that in chapter 8 of Proverbs goes like this. Ages ago I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world. And it goes on to say that he was there helping to create and rejoicing at God's right hand. So there we have what we believe is an expression of the pre-incarnate Christ. The third person in the Trinity is God the Holy Spirit who shares the same divine essence. And though Christ merited grace for us, the Holy Spirit works grace in us. The Father decreed our salvation. The Jesus accomplished our salvation. The Holy Spirit applies our salvation. Each one of those works is a triune work. But one of the persons is simply emphasized to help us distinguish, okay? Jesus was baptized. The Spirit descended in the form of a dove. The Father commended Christ. We have right there in Matthew 3, the three persons showing up. Any questions at this point? Jim? I think just the repetitiveness uh, of the God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, there's a in our finiteness, a declension in the fact that it seems to be tiered when in fact they are one right. and on the same, you need to say it, level. So as far as you, they're interchangeable. You could have Holy Spirit, Son, and Father. But I think just because of our repetitiveness of that, not to be uh, dishonoring or not God-glorifying, but it tends to put a lesserness around the Spirit and even the Son's of yeah, you're exactly right. And that's what we have to guard ourselves against, right, is trying to demean the Holy Spirit. 
<clears throat> I do think, and it is interesting, you mentioned it, that, that, the Holy, that the scriptures do repeatedly have that order, which is another reason why we say he's first in order. And as we'll look at the properties, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Holy Spirit proceeds from both. So in terms of order, it does help us. I, again, I'm not exactly sure how that all works out, but Scripture seems to be comfortable putting it like that. Um, Carrie? When I was a kid, I got a book out of my church library. I'm just curious if you would agree with this. Like, for the picture of it, it described God as an apple, and then there were different parts of the apple, the flesh, the seeds, and the skin. And that it helps kind of in a human way for me to kind of think about it. It's yeah. It's a bad way to think about it. Like, it's one entire right. piece. It's one entire yeah, I mean, I think you're right. Um, we're going to have another illustration later, similar type of thing. And every analogy breaks down. There's no earthly analogy that can adequately express the Trinity. But it does help finite minds to begin to think. I remember when I was a brand new Christian, my pastor said, okay, sit down. He took three glasses of water. This was his put them on the table and said, there you go, there's the Trinity. <laughs> Same essence, different glasses. I mean, you know, not a very good one, but we'll find another. I never thought about the apple. I never. John? Well, I remember um, when I was a teenager reading, I think it was Francis Schaeffer was talking about how because God is a Trinity and not just a, a unified or one, one community rather than just one pure one, it, it gives, uh, gives uh, weight to community, his community within himself, love, he can love himself, he can obey himself. All, if he was just one, all those things really wouldn't be possible. And so when we have community, we're not doing something greater than God, we're echoing God's community and God's love. And Absolutely. Himself. Yeah, that's part of the image of God. We're and social so, beings. And so all these things, all the distinction, not only is he has unity and distinction in himself, so the unity and distinction we see all around us is really supported up in Trinity, yeah. which is more uh, philosophically, theologically satisfying and whole than any other way of doing the world. And that is one of the things that's, that's the strongest for me in saying, yes, Christianity is right. Look, this has a, a, a fuller explanation of our experience in the world than anything else, period. Yeah. No, that's, that's true. The the different persons, the diversity, the, so, the society that we engage in, all of that echoes. I think you're right. It's also unique enough that um, it's believable that we would not have created this, that this came from God. Right. Rather than this is our imagination because it is so different than anything else. Right. Yeah. That's right. Who, who could have thought of something like this, right? I was just going to add to Laura's statement that it, it is interesting that it seems the Trinity is what really is so offensive to so many other religions. Yeah. Isn't that interesting that you know, Jim and I were evangelizing to the Muslims? And as soon as you said that Christ is the son right. of, a, of a living God, they would just become irate. Yeah, well, the Muslims, they have a high esteem of Christ. He was a great prophet, a very good man, but you're right. Once you say he's the eternal son of God, then 
no holds barred. That's right. Modalism says that God is one person who plays different roles. But of course, in Scripture, all three persons manifest themselves at the same time. So it's not just God playing different roles at different times. Jesus was baptized. At the same time, the Spirit of God descended like a dove, and a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So you don't have modes operating with three different persons at the same time. Modalism is wrong. Monarchianism, from the word monarch, king, says only one of the three persons could really be king. So the father is the greatest. This gets back to Jim's point, you know. But the obvious implication then is that the three persons can't be equal. One's got to be greater. Monarchianism. Some conclude this from what Jesus says. I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And this gets back to Don's point. Okay, what's he talking about there? You have one statement. It's the mediator, the Son of Man, who's here locally. I'm going to the Father. He's ascending to the Father. So he's talking about himself and his humanity. He's not explaining the ontological trinity. He's giving us an idea that as the mediator, the Son of Man, he's going back to the Father. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now he's saying something negative there, but notice what's implied. He had equality with God. He didn't think that was something to hang on to at all costs. He emptied himself of all vestiges of his glory. He came in humiliation, but he had been equal with God. That's what he's saying there. So Christianity teaches there's one God and three persons who are equal in power and glory. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God said, let us make man in our image. I know that's disputed. I'm convinced that it's referring there to the Trinity. Any comments or questions? I want to move on here. We've got about 10 minutes. Okay? This word is never found in Scripture. It's known. This, this doctrine is known only by special revelation. We could never. I think Laura said this. Who would come up with this? doesn't make any sense. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Worship. It's benediction. There's worship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is an incomprehensible mystery. Don't feel bad if all of this is going over your head. Join the club. But you cannot be a Christian unless you affirm and embrace this foundational truth. Name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How much do you need to know? That's the million-dollar question. Well, every Christian has to know God is one. There is a God. And every Christian has to know Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are God. Now, they can't, a child, most likely, is not going to fully understand that, neither are we, but they have to understand when they're baptized in the triune name that, that these are God, right? So they get that. They're the same in substance. They're equal persons, and yet they're distinguished. And for this reason, each one is a person. They're persons, and they share the divine essence and glory. So 
They have to understand that. Now you say, well, how come an infant is baptized? How are they going to understand? Well, they don't. Which is why we wait and we have them profess their faith when they come to years of ability and maturity to come to the table. But this is what the professing Christian needs to know. You cannot call yourself a Christian unless you believe this. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me, said David. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. Triune God, even in 2 Samuel 23. Any questions on this? Okay. Personal properties. This is kind of like the way they describe it. I'm not sure you can come up with a better term. But the three persons are distinguished. We know that. So what kind of terms are we going to use to call what it is that distinguishes them? They call it personal, their persons, properties. What is it about the father that distinguishes him from the son? A personal property. It is proper or peculiar to the father to beget the son. It is proper or peculiar to the son to be begotten by the father. And it is proper or peculiar to the spirit to proceed from both. This is what distinguishes them from one another. And theologians have called these the personal properties of God. The father has life in and of himself. He's unbegotten and unproceeding. The eternal generation of the son. It's eternal generation. Very important. Not something we can learn, but from Holy Scripture. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only begotten Son from the Father. I have highlighted that because in the ESV, they call it the only Son. For whatever reason, they have left out begotten. I think because the translators looked at the word monogenes, and they recognized that that sometimes means only, unique, that kind of thing. I'm convinced, as older translations, it needs to be there. The only begotten Son. No one has ever seen God, the only begotten God. (laughs) That's crucial. The only begotten God who is at the Father's side has made him known. So the Nicene Creed rightly says, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. Begotten of his Father before all worlds. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. Eternal generation of the Son. The procession of the Holy Spirit was a matter of dispute. Does he proceed from the Father? Or does he proceed from the Father and the Son? This is what contributed to the great split in 1054. This is where the church, east and west, formally split apart. This had been brewing for centuries. But finally they split. It was called the filioque controversy. That word filioque means from the Son. They added from the Son to the procession of the Holy Spirit. They thought for centuries the Eastern Church thinks the Spirit proceeds only from the Father. Now, can you imagine this, this, these kind of issues <laughs> occupying the church for hundreds of years? People were mutilated and martyred over this. I'm not saying right or wrong. I'm saying that's how important they took these truths. And today, (laughs) nobody would be even, no one would bat an eye. I don't care if he's from the Father or the Son. So it's very important the church was led 
to understand, and a lot of blood was spilled over this kind of thing. The eternal procession of the Spirit is from the Father and the Son. When the Helper comes, I'll send to you from the Father the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. There you have the procession from the Father. The Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, from the Father. The Spirit of Christ, from the Son. giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Filioque. John? Um, was that actually was the, would the original priest have that or was that like added in the added. Eastern version but not the Eastern version? Yeah, and, and the original Nicene Creed didn't have up the Son. They added it. But it went back and forth. Some of the church fathers were teaching it for a long time. And there was just controversy after controversy as I said until finally in 1054 they split. They're distinguished, not divided. It's a profound mystery. We can't comprehend it. We have to simply believe. And again, as I mentioned to Carrie, all analogies fail at some point, but they can be helpful. This is the one that Thomas Watson put forth. In the body of the sun, there are the substance of the sun, the beams, and the heat. The beams are begotten of the sun. The heat proceeds both from the sun and the beams. But these three, though different, are not divided. They all three make what, but one Son. So in the Blessed Trinity, the Son is begotten of the Father, the Holy Ghost proceeds from both, yet though they are three distinct persons, they are but one God. <laughs> May be helpful. The Trinity is purely an object of faith. The plumb line of reason is too short to fathom this mystery, but where reason cannot wade, their faith may swim. John? Uh, saying the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Son, were there any, beyond that's affirming the statement or not affirming the statement, were there any specific applications of it one way or the other that were being made in the church to have any difference in faith and practice other than the words? Well, I don't know if I can think of anything practically other than we are to believe the truth, and the truth is what sets you free. And if we get something wrong with regard to the Trinity, it's the foundation. So practically speaking, how you live your life, how you love your wife and your kids, I don't know. Maybe it'll have a, a, a powerful impact. But the fact of the matter is what they were saying was, look, if God has revealed it and he is the spirit of Christ, the spirit of God's son, we are bound to believe it and confess it. Again, as uh, somebody has said, according to Luther, Luther once said, if God told me to eat dung, I would eat it. Meaning, this is the word of God. So anything he says or reveals is vitally important. We are not the ones who decide what's, you know, unimportant or important. He shows us. So this is very important. It has to do with the Trinity. Um, we know something of his personality. Without that person, there would be no prayer. We wouldn't be talking to anybody, no communion, no certain hope. We are unipersonal. God is tripersonal. He is the archetype. We are the ectype, the copy. Um, there is an infinite fullness of life in God in the Athanasian Creed. We worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. 
neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance, for there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. So we have some texts here that show that to be the case. Any final questions on the Trinity? <laughs> 45 minutes. This is probably the most important doctrine. Eric? Uh, it's not really a question, but it seems to me like uh, we're all in agreement that uh, the Trinity is doctrine that we would have to accept, so likewise in the early church. But this would be a very radical acceptance, and yet it was done immediately. And I think it just points out to me that it must be truthful in that sense because it would have been radical acceptance at that time, and yet it doesn't seem like it really divided the early church at all. Right, that's a very good point. And to add to your point, this is the doctrine that Satan attacked first, right? The deity of the Son, the procession of the Spirit, all kinds of things. So he understood that if we get this wrong, everything's wrong. But the early church are exactly right. They affirmed this right off the bat. Um, any other? John, you have a question? I was just thinking if you don't say the Spirit proceeds from the Son, then you don't know a relationship between the Spirit and the Son. It seems to be a completeness of relations between all three persons. Perhaps you're right. That's true. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know exactly why or how that works. Again, I, your teacher is ignorant in some of these things. But I do know that Scripture teaches, I believe, both. And that you're right. There is a relationship between the Son and the Holy Spirit that is more than just they're both looking at the Father. So, well done. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for... Uh, revealing yourself to us. We confess our inadequacy to comprehend such profound mysteries. And yet we are thankful for your word, which is infallible, and for the Holy Spirit who guides us in understanding your word. Help us to believe and embrace and affirm this truth for the rest of our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.